the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. Welcome back to the FSS Plus Podcast. Jason Churchill alongside Joe Doyle. And we've got tunnel vision right now. At least I do. Joe, uh, we're about we're about a week out from the 2023 MLB draft. Where has the time gone, first of all? But I'm curious what your sleep schedule is looking like these days. Like, how's <laughs> how's that been going? How, well, how's you life? You texted so. me at 4 o'clock in the morning yesterday. So generally, it's a little better than today. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's going to get worse too. Just lots going on. I, I feel like what's funny here in this particular time, someone like you or someone like, uh, you know, I'm not as, as in the weeds with it as you are these days, but uh, I've experienced it in the past. One of the things that, that happens a little bit more at this point is you hear that there's more activity from the area guys, like reaching out to you. I imagine this is similar to your experience, Sounds but familiar. less, but less of everybody else. The checkers aren't as responsive and aren't as talkative when you get to them. The scouting directors aren't as responsive or as talkative because they're busy. They're in draft rooms. They're trying to figure this out. Well, but that their makes, jobs are on the line. Yeah, yeah. that made that squeezes your and, time too, and and you're not sleeping, and you got to be on their schedule. And yeah, you want to talk to the the, the pirate scouting calling. director? You got to get up at four a.m. on the on the West Coast. <laughs> agents agents seem to have a wide open schedule this time of year. <laughs> it's amazing. It's almost They're like very they, eager to tell you what they think. They tell their families you don't have a birthday at draft time. I've had I've had a guy tell me that. I'm telling you, and and I don't want to. Not that millions of people are listening to this, but I don't want to blow out his name and 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 this get out. But there is a very very prominent player that plays in a very very large market that got a very very large contract, whose agent literally told me that's what he does. Yeah, but Dad, my birthday is no, it's not. No, it's not. Mm. Your birthday. Your birthday hey, is honey, at the end of the month. Could you do me a favor and hold that baby for one more week? I got something this week. Right. Everything's on hold. That's a good point, though. Agents, they'll find time to talk, man. It's pretty, it uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, all right, here's what I'm going to do today. I want to dive into this Paul Skeens at 1-1 thing a little bit. Uh, obviously, Paul Skeens, very, very good right-handed college arm. Ridiculous stuff. Has a chance to be one of the the better arms coming out of the draft in, uh, in a long time. It evokes names like certainly Garrett Cole out of UCLA in 2011. Uh, Steven Strasburg uh, out of uh, San Diego State down in... Uh, uh, 2009, that was one of the first drafts that I covered at ESPN. And it was like, well, Strasburg's going number one. Let's figure out the rest of the draft. Um, that's not necessarily the case this year because it's pretty strong. But this Paul Skeens 1-1 thing is interesting because of what it could do to the rest of the draft and the rest of the Pirates draft. So we'll dive into that a little bit. Also on talk Kyle Teal. Uh, Joe, you were on Kyle Teal pretty early about the chances that he just skyrockets up boards. You were the first person I saw out there talking about Teal as a guy who he's probably already a first rounder here in February, but like this could continue to move and it has. So I want to talk about the floor and the ceiling for him uh, as a first round pick. And uh, I wrote Thursday night that college hitters tend to move up. College players in general tend to move up late in the draft, at least 
the public boards. They move up yeah. the public boards. They were probably already up on team boards. But if there's an early run on college hitters, like a, a really early run, like instead of guys going 18 to 30, more guys, more of those guys, the Matt Shaw's and, and, and Braden Taylor's are going top 12, 14. What does that do the rest of the draft? So we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Also, Let's talk quick, about quick correction. It's Kyle Northwest green to you. Don't forget oh, it. Good. Good Lord. Oh, <laughs> All right. So I don't think the rules, man. Kevin makes the rules. Kevin makes the rules. Yeah. So, Oh geez, teal. Yeah, it's it's not a good color, bro. Like I'm just gonna say that and move on. Is it did the like the it. north the northwest green, the action green, the whatever you want to call it, is not a good color for uh, for baseball uniform. But Kyle Teal, um, certainly one of those prospects that's uh, a little bit polarizing um, in, in that way. So we'll uh, we'll dive into that in a little bit. Paul Skeens, Joe. Uh, I hear this. I hear I hear a lot of hyperbole. When I hear people saying, oh, he's the best pitching prospect to come out in decades, I think that's a little much. I I, I do. I, I see special, I, potentially a special you know, arm there. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. Uh, pitching with pitchers, the stuff is easier to project than it is a hitter. So it's easy to see a guy that fits at the front of the rotation. But a lot of things happen. When Garrett Cole came out, he like the word on him in 11 out of UCLA was obviously the big fastball, uh, you know, up to 99. Uh, but his best secondary pitch at that point was a really firm, like change-up splitter type pitch. Not kidding. Like it wasn't his slider. It wasn't his curveball. And now he throws mm -hmm. both of those pitches. More Pitchers changes the whole point. And we just don't know how they're going to get to where we think they're going to get. So I'm a little hesitant on calling Skeens like some sort of generational pitching prospect. But obviously he's very, very good and elite in a lot of ways and the buzz lately. Uh, and again, you were the first that, uh, that I saw reporting on, you know, how this seems to be the way it's leaning right now is that the pirates are leaning to Skeens at number one instead of Dylan Cruz, which is fine. Like I, I completely understand it. I want to understand what they're going to do with it. Like, what is the idea here, Joe? Like what kind of savings are we talking about for, for that particular, spot in the draft and what exactly is you know could the pittsburgh pirates um be thinking because they pick number one and i have the slot values in front of me that that slot at number one is 9.7 million and change okay so what what's the thinking here that they can get skeins for nine or something along those lines and use it later and and if so what are they going to use it on i mean that's the thing if cruz is going to cost slot and skeins is not i get it yeah, I mean, um, there's not a lot of precedent for this, right? Uh, for this either, right? I mean, you go back and you look at some of the last like five, six, seven years, not a lot of pitchers going at the top of any one draft. Casey Mize stands out, but mm -hmm. I mean, that was kind of a down year in 2018. And, you know, going back to that year, let's see, the, the Tigers only saved 600,000 by taking him first overall. So mm -hmm. that so was about where the same the percentage, pick, right. that's where the pick value, but that's where the pick value was 8.1. And now we're up to 9.7. So I think that was a, that was a year where I think you could probably make a case that Casey Mize and Joey Bart were equally interesting at the very top of the draft. Mm -hmm. And I kind of look at it like that this year. So kind of going back to what you said, what kind of savings, could you have here with the first pick? Well, there's kind of three players leveraging themselves against one another. I think Wyatt Langford is in this conversation, and I don't think people are 
probably giving that quite enough respect. I do think Wyatt Langford is in the conversation at one. So if you're Skeens, you know that you're going to, right? I mean, like worst case scenario, if you're Paul Skeens, you're going number two. So that mm-hmm. means you're locked in to at least 8.9 million. You have the leverage to, to, to mm-hmm. bid against 8.9 mil. So what does that generally mean for the savings that you could do? It's got to be above that. I mean, I would mm-hmm. think that the Pirates to land Paul Skeens would probably have to pay him like 9.2 to go first overall. And at that point, as you kind of alluded to, you're saving 500 grand. What does that subsequently afford you later in the draft? And mm-hmm. are those savings, is 500 grand worth passing up a Dylan Cruz? Right. The Pirates pick, their next pick isn't until 42, I believe. Um, they do not have a. Uh, competitive balance round a selection so their second round pick is at 42 and the slot there is a little over 2 million and then they pick again at 67 and 73 so they do have a competitive balance round b selection so is this something that like to me i'm thinking about five hundred thousand dollars and i'm like eh, i'm kind of shrugging my shoulders i'm not saying it's nothing but i'm shrugging my shoulders i don't see a carlos correa Lance McCullers Jr. kind of a combination here necessarily. Something that really sticks out to me. But again, like teams doing me, you can speak on this more than I could, at least uh, uh, from recent years. Teams kind of cut deals with players beforehand. Like like Pittsburgh might know exactly what they're doing at one, as long as it doesn't fall apart. And exactly what they're doing at, you know, 42 or 67 or 73, or really all, you know, all four of those potentially including the dollars. And as long as it doesn't fall apart at the last second, they just go and execute on draft day. I mean, I would think you're you're correct. They probably have an idea of the one specific player that they have in mind at 42. And my guess would be that player that expects to go at 42 knows that their priority one at 42. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of guys. I, like, I don't see a lot of guys in this draft unless Pittsburgh is pulling down someone truly exceptional, like a you know, like a Colt Emerson or some of these guys that are projected to go in the 20 to 25 range, which at that point, the 20 to 25 range, those bonuses are 3.1 to 3.7. So mm-hmm. you're not going to make up that difference. It doesn't make sense for the player. Really, what you're able to do by having the 42nd pick and adding five or 600 grand to it is you're able to pull someone down effectively from pick number 33, essentially like 10 spots. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that, position you're looking at the on our board at least you're looking at kevin mcgonigal dylan head charlie soto adrian santana and my question to you would be now granted we don't know what these players are going to look like eight years from now but are any of those players their frames their tools uh you know their tools their skill sets are any of them really worth the difference of of taking paul Skeens over dylan cruz because you got to remember Yes, it'll afford you the ability to get a Kevin McGonigal, but you can still get like, you know, name your player that fits at 40 to 45. Right. Like if you're telling me it's Paul, if you're telling me that it's Paul Skeens and say Kendall George at, at one and 42 versus Dylan Cruz and Liam Peterson, I'm not really seeing the difference. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. We all know that. The Pirates may just think completely differently of some of these guys. But if that's the difference, as as I look at your latest board, I don't see a difference. I really, truly don't 
see a significant a significant enough difference. I'm taking the best player. If I think Paul Skeens is the best player, I'm going to do this regardless. I'm going to do this whether I have some sort of special plan and an eye on a guy at 42 that I don't think I can otherwise get because I'm going to need to pay him an extra four to six hundred thousand. I'm just taking Skeens because I think he's the best guy, and the and the fact that I'm getting him for nine point one or nine point two or whatever is a bonus to me. And we'll just yeah. do with it what we can, and I'll worry about the margins, you know, later. But if I think Wyatt Langford or Dylan Cruz is the best player, I have a hard time at that spot, get, like giving that up. I, I really do. So if if I'm Pittsburgh, I'm taking whoever I think is the best player. Like even if I have to pay full slot, I'm taking the best player. Here's the thing with college guys. So Dylan Cruz, yes, these guys are juniors. So we think like technically, do they have leverage? Yes. But Joe. You and I both know, everybody out there knows, Dylan Cruz, wherever he gets selected, is signing with that team. Paul Skeens, no wherever he gets selected, is signing with that team. Wyatt Langford, wherever he gets selected, is signing with that team. One, two, three, four, it doesn't matter. They're signing with that team because the risk of going back, not having as good a year, because all three of those guys had monster seasons, not having as good a year, getting hurt, um, lots of things can happen. And as a senior, you have literally zero leverage. You can't go back to school. So there's no upside for those guys to hold out big time. I read, um, I read, uh, I read a question on my show last week where it was like, well, what if, um, what if you draft a guy and he's just like, yeah, I know I hinted that I'd take, you know, 2 million, but now I want three. Well, call, you know, call his bluff. You know, to be honest with you, if it's a college guy, call his bluff. That's what I would right. do. Uh, you it, have it does, to. It does happen on occasion. It, it happened to uh, it happened to the Seattle Mariners in, uh, I believe it was round three when uh, Kevin Cron came out and they had a pre-draft agreement that he would take like 800 grand. And then they get to, well, they, they take him and the family thought, well, now we have the Mariners where we want them. Now we can just demand 1.2 and get it. And the Mariners were like, well, we don't have it to give you, so we're not going to get it. And then he ended up going to college and getting drafted far later, and he lost money out on the deal. So it does happen, but it's risky for the player, too. I just don't see that's not going to happen in the top five, top 10. I just, I'll I do just you can't one better. see that. I'll do you one better. The, the, the pick value at one is 9.7, the pick mm -hmm. value at two is 8.9 to nine, right in that range. Right. Um, you could offer, you, you could select Dylan Cruz with the number one overall pick and offer him 9.4. Mm hmm. And save yourself three hundred grand, mm -hmm. and I still don't know if Dylan Cruz has a has the ability to say no to that. Yes, no. are you going to kick off your relationship with a potential cornerstone player on very rocky terms? Mm -hmm. Sure. Are are you setting yourself up for a begrudging, you know, prospect to never sign a long term deal with you? Sure. Those both of those possibilities mm -hmm. exist, but if you really wanted to save those, you know, few hundred thousand dollars, Dylan Cruz is not going back to school and hoping right. that he's the number one pick again. Right? It's not. It's not happening with Langford. There's there, most of the guys in the top ten. Like they're not even going to think about that. The 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 college guys, the high school guys, is a little bit of a different story. It's a little bit of a different conversation. Some of these guys don't want anything to do with college. Yeah. And but you know they're not letting said, that um, out because it's leverage. Some of these guys really do value the idea of going to Vanderbilt or UCLA or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, very very. You know how you said that that Dylan Cruz has leverage because he's a junior. I mean, I would argue. I would argue he doesn't have leverage because he's the number one pick. Yeah, I think technically he does because he's Dylan Cruz. But you're right. That, that's exactly my point, actually, Joe, is that like he's not going back to school. So if you're convinced that there's pretty much no chance he goes back to school unless you, 
you know, you select him and, and super lowball him like ridiculously, and you only offer him the, the minimum that you have to offer, then maybe you could, you know, kind of tick him off and send him back to school that way. Although there'd probably be a grievance filed at that point, but Definitely. yeah, he's not going back to school. So like how much leverage does he have? That That's exactly what I'm saying, Joe. I completely agree. If I'm Pittsburgh and I'd like to get Dylan Cruz, but I want to save $300,000, I'm telling Dylan Cruz, we're taking you. And the number is 9.4. That, that, that's that's what I, I think that's what I would do. I, I don't know what their plans are for the rest of the draft, but if your mm -hmm. options are Paul, Paul Skeens at 9.1, and this is presuming that they have Dylan Cruz at the top of their board, mind you. Right. But if your right. options are Paul Skeens at 9.1 or Dylan Cruz at 9.4, I think it's a fairly straightforward answer. Yeah, for me it is. And, and I've made this known. Um, I'm much more likely to take the bat at that point than the arm. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just like it's, and I understand Dylan Cruz, White Lankford, not long-term center fielders. They're both pretty good athletes, but not guys that are just going to like run balls down for 10 years in center field at, at an above average level. They're corner guys, but they're impact hitters who probably move pretty quickly. And that's the inefficiency in major league baseball right now. Like guys like Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Langford, that's the inefficient. That's the, the, the thing we always talk about, Hey, it's, it's really difficult to find catchers. So it's really difficult to find shortstops and second basemen that can, that can hit and defend true. It's also hard just to find really good hitters that aren't going to take six years to get to the big leagues. Um, there's no reason to think Cruz and Langford aren't in the big leagues in two, three years. Right? Like, like I would think three years maximum. Right. Like barring some sort of weird, he stubs his toe nine times and has to sit out. They're going to move quickly. I would think and end I, of 2025. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think Summer like you look at Paul Skeens and I'm just not convinced that he's generational, really. Like maybe there's another gear there and I'm not seeing it. But I've I haven't talked to anybody who thinks that. that. I've gone back and forth on that. And I, I always land on, well, someone, <laughs> someone has to be generational. And having what i mean not necessarily from every draft but you know there has to be a guy that ends up being generational and mm -hmm. i feel like if it's not the guy that you know didn't walk anybody throws 102 throws a 91 mile an hour slider holds 101 through 110 pitches is six foot six mm -hmm. like if it's not that and i if you want to nitpick like yeah he doesn't spin the ball great yeah the fastball is kind of dead zone but i think it's made up for in deception if sure. it's not paul Skeens. I think you just have to dig harder and look deeper to actually unearth that generational guy. Yeah, but that's and that's my whole thing with taking a taking an arm at one. You just better be sure that he's really really special um, because you're asking for um, you, you're kind you of asking what, for it. To be honest. It's, it's, there's risk in taking the arm anyway because of of the injury factor, right? No doubt. But I would say a lot of the best pitchers in baseball. It, Let's get rid of the last two years of Steven Strasburg, but mm. you know, look at Steven Strasburg's peak. Look at Garrett Cole. Look at mm. Trevor Bauer is a very unlikable guy, but look at what Trevor Bauer was when he was in the league. Mm. Look at um, Justin Verlander. I mean, uh, the 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 top the horses uh, were generally college. Aaron Nola. These were generally college arms taken at the top of a draft. I will counter that, Joe. It's okay. a good point, but I'll counter that. And this is why I feel the way I feel about Skeens. You better be sure he's generational because like, this is the last four years in Major League Baseball. I'm just going to use wins above replacement as a, just a very general, um, you know, kind of slide rule. Like you look at the, the most valuable pitcher 
since the start of the 2020 season in Major League Baseball is Zach Wheeler. He was a top 10 pick. Okay, Kevin Gossman, top 10. But you know who's number three on that list? Corbin Burns. Do you know where he was selected? Yeah, he was yeah, a, I mean, he was a fourth round guy. We can, go, yeah. we can go a lot further. Shane Bieber, not a first round pick. Um, like Logan Webb, uh, Brandon Woodruff, Zach Gallen, like Dylan Cease. Like we can go down the list. That's the top 20. And of the guys that are drafted, more than a third of them were not even first round picks, let alone top five picks. I just think it's, it's, I look at it from if I'm the Pirates or I'm the Nationals, if I'm the Nationals, it's a little bit different. But if I'm the Pirates and I have a choice between Cruz and Lankford, like I'm not even sure Skeens is that heavily on my radar at this point, unless it's a negotiating ploy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think there's two ways to look at this. I think both of these things, I I think what you and I are both saying is true. Like, Mm -hmm. There has never been a time in Major League Baseball where it has become more commonplace to develop really good arms. And I think we're seeing that at Bryce Miller and Mitch Sheehan, like we're Matt Brash, like we're seeing good arms come up as third or fourth rounders. Mm -hmm. But I also think you can look at it from the other side and just say, you know, also the college pitchers taken in the top three, four, five, like they end up. They do well. They absolutely do well. I think it's both. Man, it goes back forever. That's been a forever thing. Yeah, that's been a forever. And and the guys that don't generally, I mean, we think of Mark Appel, who probably was never actually that good in the first place. Um, And you think of a guy like... uh, But John uh, Gray was taken in that draft, number three. And he has been, let's say, a good number three. And mm -hmm. at at times, an okay number two. Right. So I mean that's you know that's an example it, of horse. and so that's kind of the floor that. when you take a guy in the in the, in the first five picks right that's kind of the floor as you're getting a mid rotation you would have to think so I mean Kevin Gossman was the first arm taken in 2012 mm-hmm. he, and it took him a while to get there it, it took him a while did. to get there but that's but not because a, he didn't belong in that portion of the draft right now he's a Cy Young guy so and then we think about Casey Mize that's an injury situation like if he was 100 yeah that's, healthy, that's bad luck and like, he holds what, the same same thing what happens to, yeah what happens to that if he's not healthy so Max Freed a kid out of high school that was taken really high has had a really good career it's one of the top Harvey 15 pitches over the last four years top so yeah five. so the the risk on performance isn't there it's not it's injury and it's expectation and and, and how good is he really and how valuable is it? i think i guess that's what i'm saying is how valuable is having a one or a two versus having that that five win player playing right field or third base. I'm not even talking Agreed. about guys up that's, the middle. You know that's I mean? the quintessential question, because mm-hmm. I think if you are betting on the medium outcome for both of these players, mm-hmm. like how much more valuable is a five win outfielder than a five win pitcher? I think it's pretty cut and dry. Right. The outfielder provides more value on a day mm-hmm. in and day out basis because mm-hmm. the bat has, it, it has an impact on the players around him too. Yes, right. the arm will the the arm could single handedly win you you know by himself fifteen games a year. Mm-hmm. Just the other team didn't stand a chance. But the bat has a, a solid impact on your lineup up and down the lineup and changes your get changes it, the game it, it, plan it changes, on your lineup every day. It changes the complexion of your entire team in some cases. And so. there's less of them. There's just less of them. If you went around and looked at like, I don't know, like to put a wins above replacement, just to put a war number on a on a slot in the rotation is difficult. I haven't really thought about it much. But like if if a number one starter is a seven win starter and a number two starter is a five win starter, 
and a number three starter is like a three to three and a half wins. Like if we did something along those lines, there are more arms that are going to be three win arms that fit into those three slots than there are outfielders. Definitely. Uh, it, it's crazy. Even though there are three starting outfielders, like let me let me throw another example at you, and I I want to hear your thoughts on this. Now, I think you and I both are of the opinion that Dylan Cruz is pseudo generational. He's something of the mm. sure thing conversation, right? Sure. If you go back to 2015, let me just read off the first two college bats taken in every draft. Now, 2015 was Dansby Swanson and Alex Bregman. They've been cornerstones for wherever yeah. they've been for the most mm -hmm. part. It took some time for, for uh, Dansby. But 2016, you got Nick Senzel, who's struggled and Corey mm -hmm. Ray, who hasn't hardly had a pro career. 2017, yeah. you got to go down to uh, Paven Smith, who's it's been rough and Adam Hazley. Now Paven mm -hmm. Smith has actually had an okay last couple sure. of years, but it's a major leaguer at least speaks mm -hmm. to those two. Uh, you go to 2018, Joey Bart, who has largely been a disappointment uh, yep. and Alec Bohm, who has been a steady, not spectacular everyday regular. And yep. then I'll do the last one here. 2019 and we'll probably want to do 2020 for the sake of where the player has been uh mm -hmm. adley rutschman and andrew vaughn both of them have been steady guys 2020 right. was spencer torkelson and heston kerstad the jury's still out so i guess my entire point in all this my it's a long-winded way of saying while i think you and i would both agree that dylan cruz is only in the same conversation there as a a Adley Rutschman, right? He's a better prospect than what Dansby Swanson was. And he's just an entirely different prospect than what Alex Bregman was. I, I think it still speaks to the fact that there's no sure things in either case. And I think mm. you just take whatever you think personally is the surest thing because they're both premium uh, prospects for you, Joe, as we close this out, um, are you at all? I, I'm big on like tiebreakers. Okay. Now, if you talk to guys that have been in that draft room, that are in that draft room, they will tell you there's really no such thing. They, they will tell you that there's really no such thing. Guys at the top, guys that are scouting directors GM, there's no such thing. You will always find a way if you're pitting Paul Skeens gets Dylan Cruz. There aren't any tiebreakers where you go, well, and then pitchers are more likely to get hurt. So, that I hate bumps skis. I hate out. that conversation. They don't do that. Like it's already kind of wrapped up in the in the evaluation of the the players themselves. So there really aren't tiebreakers. You will find a way to give that extra little tiny bit of credit or points to one player or the other. And you will just never, even at number one, you will never actually be hundred percent even. But how much for you? Would organizational – these are two college players. We're talking about Dylan Cruz. We'll throw Lankford in there too. Lankford, Cruz, and Skeens. These are three college players that are likely getting to the big leagues pretty quickly. And Skeens, like, you know, you could throw him into the majors right now and he could get outs. So at what level would you, if you're the general man, if you're Ben Sherrington in Pittsburgh, do you say, let's take the guy that's going to get to the big leagues the quickest – and help us in an area where we lack because that pitching in in the pirates organization you know priester's pretty close but other than mitch keller there's not a lot going on really close to the majors and at and in that major league rotation and skeens literally could be there next year it's a good question um i wouldn't put any onus on that because they need bats too like it's you look at that farm system it's not like they're like, oh, we got so many bats at the doorstep. I mean, they still need, and especially impact bats. Like, they don't have 
Henry Davis could be an impact bat, but mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of middle of the order guys, not not knocking yeah. on the door. So I guess it kind of depends. Like if I'm Artie Moreno, the answer is very easy. Uh, <laughs> if I'm Ben Charrington, it's a very different, it's a very different question. Here's what's very telling about what you just said, Joe. You mentioned the general manager in Pittsburgh and the owner in Anaheim. Well, we know who's the we know who yeah. the puppet master is yeah. on there. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And if it's not the puppet master in LA, it's hey, uh, we're gonna give you this shot, Perry, but also you have like two or three years to get this done because if Shohei doesn't stay, we're gonna pivot. Yeah. You know, yeah. We should probably have a conversation uh, after the draft about Shohei Otani and what happens there, too. Yeah, Yeah, probably. They won't trade him, though. The worst thing that ever happened for the Angels is they're competing. (laughs) No, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. But what do you do? You know, like, what do you do if you're you're Anaheim at the end of the year and he walks? Um, That puts him in a trade him. They're kind of going for this winter. They should have traded him for this. I'm really big on that. I think the Francisco, I'm calling it the Francisco Lindor rule. The Cleveland waited too long to trade Lindor. It hurt his value in more ways than one. And I feel the same way about just about every player where the team's like, well, we're not going to resign because we're not going to give him the money it's going to take. So what are you doing? Like, why are you holding on to him? Anyway. Everyone has lost that trade. Everyone yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Mets gave Lindor a bunch of money. And while he's been good, he hasn't been great. So certainly not living up to that deal. One of my favorite players in baseball, Francisco. Mine too. Lindor. I wish it was better because I wish he was the face of baseball, to be totally, frankly, honest yeah, with you. That's a good point. Me too. He he's a uh, he's got style. Uh, he's athletic. Uh, he's, he's fun. Well liked, yeah, well liked. Uh, does a lot of things on the field. I do wish he was more consistent at the plate. Uh, hit me hit, hit three hundred, Francisco. Like I'm not a big batting average guy, but hit three hundred a couple of times. Yeah. That's all we need. All right. Uh, as we look at the way the first round might unfold, uh, one of the name one of the names that's really climbed up boards really fast, and I think he's probably been in the top ten somewhere for most, if not. You know, maybe not the entire spring, but most of the spring. And that's Kyle Teal. And Joe, in your latest uh, draft board, you have Teal ranked uh, number six. And I believe in your latest mock, um, you have him going, I believe, six to Oakland. Um, I'm curious as to how high you think he might be able to climb here. So if we were to assume that Skeen's and Cruz in some order go one, two, because that seems like the consensus. I don't want to assume anything at three, but it could be Langford, could be Jenkins, could be Clark. Like what's the ceiling here for Kyle Teal out of Virginia? We'll dive into what exactly Kyle Teal is in a second here, but you have him going six Minnesota, unless Skeens were to fall, it looks like Minnesota is a really good landing spot for Teal too. Is five the ceiling or could we see Texas or Detroit jump in on Kyle Teal for under slot and we could see the Virginia catcher go even higher than he's projected at this point. I've, I, I've tried to figure out like different combinations of one through three and for what's on the board at four. And I can't really find a situation where I think I would be comfortable saying Texas would walk away from Skeens, Langford, Cruz, and, and they've been so attached to, Walker Jenkins this whole time he Mm. feels like he's going to be the pick but that being said if you look at what the Rangers did last year with Kamar Rocker I mean there I think there stands a chance that they try and take a Kyle Teal save here's the issue you're not going to save very much money by taking Kyle Teal at four like this isn't like Kamar Rocker if you take Kyle Teal at four the slot value is 7.7 million Mm -hmm. 
I don't think he's making it past the A's, you know, or or maybe he could fall a little bit further than that, but he probably negotiates uh, negotiates against the fifth or sixth pick. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you save six hundred grand by taking Kyle Till at four, and in that case, I think they just take Walker Jenkins. So, I tend to think the ceiling is five to mm-hmm. Minnesota. Okay. I think there's an extremely light chance that he could go four to the Rangers, mm-hmm. but man, it seems like it's a pretty tight bracket. Like I, I have a, it seems difficult to see him slipping past the Royals at eight. Like that's kind of his range. Somewhere between five and eight. Well, I can tell you this. Picks. I know the Marlins are angry with Rob Manfred because the Marlins would really like to have Kyle Teal and are willing to, to spend the necessary money and go over slot to get him. And they don't feel he's getting to them either. So, and the Marlins are at 10 and they're mad at Manfred because you can't trade picks. <laughs> That's been the thing. Why can't we trade picks yet is what I was told like a month ago or so. Like that would be great because moving from 10 to like five to get Kyle Teal is probably what the Marlins would consider. This is kind of a fun little tease. I'll, uh, I'm not going to give this to the podcast, but I'll tell you something that, that I heard after the podcast. Be kind of cool. It adds on to your Marlins conversation. A, a tease. Interesting. Um, sorry. Sorry, general public. This It's more like a nan and a... Yeah, you'll find out sooner or later. Uh, yeah, on July 9th. July, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we're only, we're only a week away. We're a little, little more than a week away, so you right. don't have to sit around and wait. Uh, by the way, in general, are you for trading picks? Yeah, I imagine you are. Definitely. I, I like what you've said in the past in terms of you know regulating the process of mm-hmm. only being able to trade your first rounder every other year or you know right. handling it some way that way but yeah I, I mean it makes the event and it makes the sport inherently more interesting now if it turns into the nba draft where the same player is traded five times on the night they're picked right what's the point yeah so if you put those regulations on it, like like for example you can't like you said you can't trade your first round pick uh two years in a row uh like maybe they only allow uh, a team to like, here's the thing. You can't trade out of the first round two years in a row. Like if you go from six to 12 and then the next year you go from 11 to 18, fine. Like you haven't traded out of the first round at all. Right. Um, Because you're just maneuvering around and you're trying to make things, you know, like, like that's probably fine. I also think like, yeah, kind of on the same, kind of on the same note, not really on the same note at all. Now that I think about it, uh, do you do you realize that the Nationals, as poor as their season is going, cannot be? Uh, they can't have a top six pick next year. Yeah, yeah. So they should try and win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz can help them do that. Just Facts. getting them into their system, they can can help them do it. Because when you feel like you have guys that are on the brink that are going to be on your major league roster within a couple of years, it's easier to start building that roster out. Like start doing mm-hmm. it this winter and you don't have to go through this big, long, giant rebound. That, the Juan Soto trade helped them. You get Mackenzie Gore and Abrams and, and Wood on the way. And like that was a big help to them. But uh, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, they should, they should start trying to win. I think the, the Nationals doing something like, um, uh, like what the, uh, the Texas Rangers have done. You know, going out and getting Semyon and and Corey Seager in a big offseason, even though they probably knew year one wasn't going to go great. I could see the Nationals doing that. I think what's holding that up, though, is the ownership change in Washington. So I'm not sure a lot what's of that right now. Yeah, there's a lot so, of that going in Baltimore and yep. it's everywhere. Baltimore, what a terrible situation that is. They got a it's ton of young talent, and the owners like, eh, whatever. 
like whatever. Just put it all on the GM. It's it's awful. Not if the, good. But by the way, if the Padres owner was in Baltimore, Baltimore probably would look like a World Series team right now <laughs> because of what they already also had true. coming up through the farm and then going out and adding Bogarts and like what they've done the last couple of years in terms of adding their payroll. It's been absolutely uh Absolutely crazy. So Kyle Teal really talking. That's a tight window. Five to kind of eight about right in there. That's the twins to the to the Royals. Um, is there like we look at Cincinnati, by the way, at seven. Um, and I think in your latest mock, and I'm sure you'll have an update here pretty quickly, but uh you have Rhett Louder, uh, the Wake Forest kid, going seven uh to the Reds. Um, if Kyle Teal is available at seven, do the Reds take him? They got they got a guy. They got a guy, but that's not really how the draft works. It's like, well, we don't need a catcher. First of all, you always need catchers. Second of all, and you always – it's BPA, right? BPA. And and they do. Like, Kyle Teal's not going to be in the big – I mean, I'm, I don't want to guarantee – I don't want to tell Kyle. Kyle Teal, you could be in the big leagues next year, but Joe, Kyle Teal's not going to be in the big leagues next year. Um, oh. I never want to tell a player he can't These do These guys haven't called but, a game. Right. They haven't – like, there's like two schools that actually let their pitchers call games. You got to mm-hmm. learn how to handle a staff and quite literally how to call a game. So, no, yeah. he's not going to be in the big leagues until at least 2026. Yeah, he's a 3 plus year guy. Yeah, absolutely. He might hit his way there. Maybe they they move him off catcher, you know, but uh that's probably not a guy you take at 7 anyway. So, if you're the Reds, are you pretty much looking at college guys there and like so Teal is 5 or 6 and then maybe 8 or 9? Um and if 8's the floor, we're just talking about a three team window. Twins, A's, Royals. Probably. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think it's a pretty tight window. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Considering, you know, before the year started, most people didn't know who Kyle Teal was. Yeah. That's, that's quite the, that's quite the lead. Good for Kyle Teal. He had a, he had a big year. All right. Really quick before we get off of Teal. Um, tell me what kind of a comp Kyle Teal, the hitter, ignore the defense comp Kyle Teal, the hitter. We're talking about a left-handed bat. Uh, he's, he's not the six, five, 220 pound Matt Weeders kind of a catcher. Tell us about Kyle Teal. Who does he remind you of? What kind of power numbers is he going to put up? What are his best tools? Give us a little mini scouting report if you could. Honestly, he reminds me of two players. The swing reminds me a lot of Kyle Seeger, actually. Yeah. There's a ton of loft. Yeah. Uh, there's a ton of pull side emphasis. There is quite a bit of chase, but he really fights off the junk. I mean, it's 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 weird. He's He's got a really high chase rate. But I think he ranks in inside of like the top ten mm-hmm. in college baseball in in actual out of zone contact percentage. So, uh, yeah, a super aggressive hitter. Uh, all the emphasis is to the pull side. Plenty of bat speed. He reminds me of Kyle Seager. He reminds me a little bit of like in terms of production, like Brandon Lowe. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's probably going to be a guy that hits like two forty five with some strikeout issues and runs into like. 22 to 25 home runs a year, which, you know, for the number of what six pick in the draft, you're saying you're telling me I'm buying or I should be excited about a 255 hitter Mm. who only hits 24 home runs a year (laughs) and strikes out a bunch. And I would tell you to go find me three other catchers. Also, Kyle Teal is probably going to steal you like 12 to 20 bases a year. Find me three other catchers that are capable of that sort of production behind the plate. It's JT Real Muto and... Yeah, there's a little Jason Kendall in there except more power. 
you know, which is kind of the modern day Jason Kendall, even though Teal's a left-handed bat. But when you look at the league averages, Joe, like around the league, like it doesn't sound good to say you might hit 245 or 250. But when you look around, like even with the 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 shift restrictions and some of the new rules, the league is hitting 248. So if you're getting yeah. league average numbers from a catcher who also might steal you 15 to 20 bases a year, that's 248, 324, 10. That's the slash. That's the league average right now. If you get that from your catcher, you're doing really, really well. And I think if Kyle it, Teal is better than that because he adds you some defense and he adds you some some speed on the bases, base at least early in yeah. his career. Yeah. Like that's obviously a really, really good player. Um, I think if, if Kyle Teal is an above average defender, like I pointed out, or like we've pointed out in the past, mm. and let's say he is a 245, 250 hitter, 22 to 24 home runs you know 15 stolen bags in the first few years of his career like mm. i think we're talking about a four to four and a half win catcher yeah makes all star teams makes an all star team every year i mean like yep. those guys just those they, they don't exist yeah it's interesting it's a pretty decent crop of catchers in major league baseball right now but it's very very top heavy it's the it's the Adley Rutschmans and the Will Smiths and the Jonah Himes and and JT Realmuto and the two Contreras guys, depending on if the one in St. Louis is actually catching. It's Cal Raleigh. There's some guy, Tyler Stevenson in Cincinnati, Shea Langliers in Oakland. I really like their future. Kiebert Ruiz and what but it's but it's pretty top heavy. They're, they're like 10, 11, 12 guys that you're like, okay, those look like number one, number one catchers. Absolutely awesome. But then you realize there are 30 teams in the league. Yeah. <laughs> so a guy like Kyle Teal has tons of uh, tons of value there. Cool. Uh, I'd be interested to see where he goes. But it certainly looks like uh, somewhere in the top 10. And and uh, from uh, from what you just said, eight is the floor. That's that's awesome. Uh, Kansas City could be replacing Salvador Perez with Kyle Teal, who they, they couldn't be more different. <laughs> athletically oh <my laughs> but there's some one, similarities one's a tank <laughs> and one's a deer. yeah it's it's uh it's pretty funny uh good stuff um really quick before we go uh college bats college hitters college players in general tend to move slowly the final month or so to the draft up boards like at least public boards we hear you know, hey, we really like Blake Mitchell. We really like Noble Meyer. He, we think he's a top 10 guy. We think he's a top 20 guy. And then all of a sudden that team comes up and both those guys are on the board and they take a college guy. This happens all the time, constantly. I've been hearing a lot of Matt Shaw, Teal, obviously, uh, Tommy Troy, uh, guys like that being talked about in the top 15 or so. Uh, Enrique Bradfield. Um, and there's a chance that all of them, all of them go top 15. We get down to the, the Chase Davises and the, and Braden Taylor. Uh, there are teams that think Braden Taylor's a top 10 guy. And if those guys do go Shaw, Troy, Bradfield, Taylor, what does that do to the rest of it? Let's say those guys all go top 15. What does that do to the rest of the first round and the rest of day one, at least? Does that put the the prep kids, the, the McGonagall's, the Colin Houck's, uh, you know, guys like that kind of, you know, on notice as far as like, well, here comes the run on, on prep middle infielders, or does this move the college pitching up a little bit in the draft? Because there are teams out there with models that extreme to the extreme, uh, value the college player over the prep player. You know, I think, I think one of the really interesting things is I think there's enough college bats that most people expect to go in the 15 to 25 range that if they do sneak their way, Bradfield is a great example. 
if or you know Blake Mitchell. Um, I know he's a high schooler, but I think if you hear some of these surprise names in the five through 10, 11 range, everyone should probably be on notice that there's going to be some overslot fun that's going to take place like 30 to 40. Because mm-hmm. in a year that has this many college bats, there's usually some deals to be had in, you know, in the six through 15 range right in there. And if those deals happen, it's going to push probably some you know, pre-draft deals down the radar into that 30 to 40 range. And so, you know, let's say the first round ends and for some reason, Walker Martin is still available or for mm-hmm. some reason, Blake Mitchell is still available. Well, that player is probably available because there was a run on college bats and because there was a bunch of underslot deals. So I don't really know where the run would happen. I think there's some high school talent that is just too rich to be pulled down, you know, Aiden mm-hmm. Miller and, and sure. Noble Meyer and Colt Emerson. Like, I don't think those players have a chance of being pulled down, but mm-hmm. kind of the guys you mentioned, like the Kevin McGonagall's, Dylan Heads, Sammy Stafura, George Lombard, like those guys could be packages um, with a college guy that goes a little bit earlier. That's actually something I'm really looking forward to. And I'll tell you, I do think Jacob Wilson is the name that falls into that bucket. Like if Jacob Wilson is a guy that goes eight or goes 10, mm-hmm. I think there's been enough deflation in his value to where he could be a big package deal with a guy like, you know, Blake Walters or, you know, mm-hmm. name your high school uh, standout in that, in that comp round day. Interesting. Uh, before we go, one thing at this point, about a week out, we're about a week, week and a half out from day one of the draft, July nine. Um, is there a player that you tend to like for the first round that most don't? Do you tend to like, I'm looking for Joe Doyle likes this guy better than pretty much everybody else. Um, in and terms I, of just I, liking the player or thinking they're going to go in the first and nobody's no, talking I think, about it. No, I think you personally thinking this guy belongs like 25 to 40 when pretty much everything else you hear outside of your own brain and how you value his profile and his tools and things like that, everybody else has him like 70 to 100 or something like that. There's like For me, there's always one or two guys like that. They're, they're always, um, you know, I, I look at a guy like this year, uh, you know, I look down at, I, I mentioned Kendall George. That's a guy to me that I would probably yeah. take in the top 30. That's a great call. Right. Uh, it, it, from the college side, like I see Mac Horvath and I'm thinking, hell yeah. Mo- most teams have him in, I think the, the highest I've heard is like 47, but most teams have him in the seventies. And I'm thinking if Seattle took him at 30, I'd be like, oh yeah, I see it. So there's obviously beauty in the eye of the beholder. I'm just curious who that guy might be for you this year and it doesn't have to be first rounder that nobody sees as a first rounder. it could be like you think this guy's a third rounder and everybody else thinks he's a seventh rounder and i'll I'll do you one better like in the seattle one it probably doesn't happen but i think there's a universe where seattle does drag someone down to 22 and over slots them Mm -hmm. and matt horvath makes a ton of sense at 30 to kind of clean up the financial situation there but I got I got two guys. One, I think Bryce Matthews belongs in the first round. Mm-hmm. I don't know where. It's probably in the 25 to 35 range, definitely towards the end. But I think it's kind of hard to find a college shortstop with that much twitch and that much yeah. power. Like, they don't really grow on trees. And I know that there's some concerns over the 
entire hit tool, but mm. like, man, that guy, that if you put that guy right next to, give me a college third baseman. Um, Morales. Maybe not Jacob. Yeah, Morales. I mean, he's got, he's not as physical as Morales, but mm. he's a better athlete than Morales. Like I'm, I'm all in on Bryce mm. Matthews. I love that one. And I'll give you a deep, deep cut. Mitch Jeb out of Michigan mm. State. Mm-hmm. Is I really love that player, and I think he's going to hit a ton. I don't care if he's in left field. I don't care if he's at second base. I don't care if he's at shortstop. That guy really interests me, and I would I would like to see Mitch Jeb go in, in comp round A because I think he's a really good player. Yeah, he's a little bit of an unorthodox uh, setup, Fair, right? Yeah. Like you can't like when you see video there. There's Mitch Jeb. Like <laughs> he's Nori Aoki with like uh, Subway footlong in him. You know? Right. Yeah. Like, oh, he, ate a, he, he actually ate some food today. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Uh, Joe, we'll talk again in about a week. We'll massage the next episode uh, of this podcast around uh, your schedule late next week as we uh, lead into day one uh, of the draft. Looking forward to your next draft board at futurestarseries.com. Looking forward to your final mock draft at futurestarseries.com. Follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Doyle, M I L B. Yeah. You can follow me at prospect insider if you want. I'm not really big. Follow on, Jason. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not going to give you a whole lot. Joe's going to give you good stuff, including through the draft. Uh, but you're going to want to be around at futurestarseries.com and around the socials, uh, all three days of the draft. We have big plans, and Joe is a big part of that. Joe, uh, we'll talk next week. Try to get some sleep this week, huh? I know that's a difficult task uh, this time of year. Hey, man, it's it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is, actually. Just a little bit. It's mostly Not really. Good. I slept it's, right through it. It's I, a little I bit. I back at nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll talk next week. This has been the FSS Plus Podcast. So just chill to the next episode.